0: Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry and today we have a very special guest. I'm going to hand you over to... Hi, my name is Dr Nerys Conway and I am a consultant in acute medicine in the Royal Glamorgan Hospital in Llan Thank you so much for joining us. So today we are going to talk through some toxicology cases. So I'm going to hand it over to you.
1: So this was a gentleman who came into our emergency department, and he was really agitated. And he had been found amongst a lot of bo- a lot of boxes of medication. So these included things like ibuprofen and sertraline. And he was referred pretty quickly from um, our emergency department to the medical team because they were actually really struggling with his agitation. So I saw him with our registrar not long after he'd actually been brought into hospital. And um, when I saw him, he was incredibly agitated. Mm -hmm. He uh, obviously clearly very much had an airway. So when you're sort of reviewing any sort of toxicology patient, always do the ABCD approach. So I was very happy with his airway. Um, We managed to sort of encourage him to have some basic monitoring. So he had a normal respiratory rate. He was oxygenating well, breathing spontaneously. But he was quite tachycardic and hypertensive Mm. and even though he was alert he was clearly clearly quite delirious and agitated he had big big pupils and um his blood sugar was okay but his temperature was over 40 degrees wow so my biggest concern obviously at this point was that he had serotonin syndrome and also i was really concerned by how agitated he was his Mm. challenging behavior And I thought, how are we going to manage this patient? So we managed to try and we kind of did what we could. We reassured him. We tried to tell him he was in a safe environment. We tried to cool him as best we could because obviously with serotonin syndrome, it's really important to remember that it's the hyperpyrexia that kills you. So that's your real focus of treatment. So we tried to sort of cool him down as best we could. So we got some fans into recess, we offered him some cool water. We just tried to make sure he was as stripped as possible as he could be, Mm -hmm. obviously protecting his dignity. And um, we tried to give him some IM benzodiazepines, but he was really not, we were really struggling with his management. So I called our intensive care consultant and she kindly came down and assessed him pretty quickly as well. And then we made a best interest decision to sedate him, to intubate him and to cool him then on ITU and settle him down. And then he stayed on ITU for a few days and he was cooled, his temperature was constantly monitored and then he was seen by the psychiatry team. Mm -hmm. So serotonin syndrome happens in about 15% of patients that have taken an overdose of serotonergic overdose, uh, serotonergic agents.
0: Does it have to be an overdose of serotonin or can it be when they're just taking their normal serotonin medication?
1: So it, interestingly, if you're on one or more serotonergic agent, then your risk of having serotonin syndrome does increase. So for example, you could be on an SSRI mm-hmm. such as citalopram And you may go to the GP with back pain and the GP then may, for example, prescribe you some tramadol. Then you would be on two serotonergic agents and then you're much more likely then to get a serotonin syndrome. Mm -hmm. And there are things even over the counter. So things like St. John's Wort um, Mm. that you can take. And obviously you don't forget about the recreational drugs as well, like um, ecstasy and cocaine. So... Always ask about other things, just think outside the box and mm-hmm. ask about other medications, not just prescribed as well. Okay. Another thing to remember as well in these patients is that some of them may be f- confused, for example. So some of the elderly patients may be confused. They may take the wrong medication, so they may end up taking their husband's medication, for example, or they may just simply take too many of their medication.
0: So it could be a complete accidental overdose. Mm-hmm. And how quickly after they've taken the medication does this symptom set in? So it's quite abrupt serotonin
1: syndrome Mm -hmm. whereas a lot of people do confuse it with um, NMS or neuroleptic malignant syndrome Mm -hmm. and that is over a much more sort of chronic stage Mm -hmm.
0: but serotonin syndrome is much more acute. Okay so what are the differentials for serotonin syndrome? So what else could it have been in this patient? So what as a general physician do I need to be thinking about as well apart from drug overdoses? So one thing that I think that when we see a high temperature
1: nowadays we automatically think of sepsis. Absolutely. And of course with good reason but actually I think if you've got a patient that has got a high temperature and that has got a There's really agitated or just a bit confused or just a bit off sorts. That needs to sort of serotonin syndrome needs to be in your differential. Mm -hmm.
0: So we're talking about differential diagnoses of serotonin syndrome. So you mentioned that sepsis. Now, if you actually look at the criteria for the diagnosis of sepsis, you don't even look at temperature anymore. But we're still obsessed with Mm. pyrexia, aren't we? Yeah. But I guess meningitis, encephalitis, although that is an infection. Is there anything else that you'd want yeah. to think about?
1: So other sort of differentials, especially if you've got a high temperature, would be things like your tricyclic overdoses, okay. salicylate overdoses,
0: and your anticholinergic agents as well. Okay, and one's just come to mind, um, anaesthetic use. So malignant hypothermia, secondary to inhaled anaesthetics. So that's also an important question to ask, I guess, if they yeah. recently... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay. So what investigations do we need to do in this man who's got... We think he's got serotonin syndrome. You said you've got intensive care involved to manage him. Is there any particular key investigations we need to do? So
1: obviously I would definitely do your normal baseline bloods. Mm-hmm. So full blood count, UNE, an LFT, um, a CRP, um, do a CK as well. Why? So I would do a CK just to, first of all, make sure that they haven't got anything like rhabdomyolysis. Mm-hmm. This guy, for example, was found on the floor. We didn't really know how long he had been there for. So I'm looking for that reason. Another
0: reason is just to make sure that they haven't got NMS, mm-hmm. which obviously causes a raised CK. So NMS causes a raised creatine kinase because they get lots of muscles contractions, don't they, in movement, yeah. so that can obviously push the CK up. Okay, toxicology screens... What are your thoughts about those? So when you do a urinary toxicology
1: screen um, you're obviously looking for more your sort of illicit drugs mm-hmm. and I I found that useful certainly when um, for example the patient has been a little bit unsure about what they've taken for mm-hmm. example um, but also as well I I sometimes find that it is it is of use of when you don't really know what's going on or you're you're not really sure if the patient's actually telling the truth about what mm-hmm. they've taken for example if you've got a young patient in front of you they're not really willing to say in front of their mother mm-hmm. or their girlfriend who may have sort of brought them in mm-hmm. so it can have the use in that way but they do take time mm-hmm. which is another issue they do take time to come back so you don't always get an answer straight away
0: yeah and i when i was a trainee in acute medicine i worked at city hospital in birmingham which was where the national poisons center was so actually, that was really good, and they did a toxicology screen, which they basically did tested for everything. It was called a TOF screen or a time of flight screen. So drugs that I hadn't even heard of that were very specific to Birmingham, yes, which was very very
1: useful. Yeah, and that's the thing because one thing you find is different centres will do different things. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's no real sort of consensus of what a toxicology screen is, and mm-hmm. different departments, as I say, will will look for different drugs. Mm-hmm.
0: So, just to recap that on the management of serotonin toxicity. So, you said we'd stop the treatments.
1: Yeah. So, stop the offending agent or agents. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure that your real focus of treatment is the hyperpyrexia. You're really, you are trying to cool the patient down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because that's what will lead to multi-organ failure if left untreated and inevitably death. So, you must cool the patient down. Give them some fluids put some fans around, tepid sponges, whatever you can get your hands on basically to try and cool them. Mm -hmm. If they're agitated, then I recommend using some benzodiazepines. Okay. In a more sort of intensive care setting, you're looking at things like dantrolene for muscular hyperactivity. There's no real evidence that ciproheptidine and chlorpromazine actually work in severe serotonin syndrome, Mm -hmm. but there are sort of good case reports out there. However, it's difficult to know whether the patients would have got better anyway because mm-hmm. serotonin syndrome is relatively short-lived. Mm-hmm. And then if you've got a severe acute kidney injury or a hyperkalemia, then really you're looking at filtration or dialysis.
0: Okay. okay. So these patients can get really sick Really, really quickly, yeah. can't they? How early would you get ITU involved? I mean, I know you said that in this case you spoke yeah. to ITU. Is that something you do in everybody with serotonin syndrome? Not necessarily. So I think if you've got
1: sort of a sort of a mild hyperpyrexia, so mm-hmm. up to sort of thirty-eight, you can probably manage that, but keep a really close eye on the patient mm-hmm. and have a low threshold for getting ITU involved if that temperature starts spiking. Mm-hmm. But I honestly feel that like the earlier the better, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially if you're struggling with the patient, because a lot of them are agitated. I don't think I've ever seen a patient with serotonin syndrome that's been particularly um, compliant and willing to sort of sit down yeah. and accept the treatment, if you see what I mean. Yeah, so absolutely. Predominantly, in these cases, I've got them involved early, and I've never had any issues with ITU accepting them. Okay,
0: yeah, because it can be really Yes, it can be devastating,
1: yeah. And as I say, usually... It's when they're hyper-pyrexic, hyperpyrexic. I, too, know how sick these people can get.
0: Thank you very much for bringing that case Some really key learning points. Do you want to share another case with us that you've seen? I saw a patient fairly recently
1: with chest pain, and he he'd had chest pain for about 24 hours. So he's fairly late presenting. Mm-hmm. And his ECG showed, but he had an anterior MI. Now, he was only 28. Wow. <laughs> so we were like, what on earth is going on? So he, he ended up going to the nearest tertiary center for coronary angiography. And he, when the interventionist did the angiogram, he had a completely occluded LAD. And when they had to perform <laughs> an aspiration thrombectomy, and it was just like sort of sucking up jelly from his coronary arteries because his blood was so thick. And he was 28 years old. Yeah, 28 years old. And his haemoglobin came back and it was over 200. His HCT <laughs> H- was really high as well. So he had a secondary polysynthemia. So he had, his blood was like glue. His blood was like glue. It was thick, such sticky a hyperviscosity state. So he... Ended up on a tyrofibran infusion. Uh, he ended up having an LV thrombus as well. So he was anticoagulated with warfarin. And he still remains under follow-up at the tertiary center. So my real sort of learning points from this case would be that you've got to be familiar with what patients are taking because he was actually injecting erythropoietin, So he was abusing EPO. Wow. And actually that was a big, the, the sort of bodybuilders and the enhanced... Um, They were, sorry, they were using erythropyietin where I'm from to, as a performance enhancing drug and the bodybuilders were using it. Wow. So (laughs) interestingly when the cyclists were abusing erythropyietin they'd have to wear cardiac monitors at night. So if their heart rate dropped below a certain threshold, an alarm would go off, they'd have to get up on the bike and raise their heart rate to try and prevent their blood from clotting. So it's a really, it can be a really big problem.
0: I have never heard of that. I mean, I obviously know about erythropoietin yeah. use and a misuse, but I didn't realise so many people were using it in, yeah. you know, bodybuilding or performance enhancing. Oh yeah, drugs. you can buy it very
1: readily on the internet. Oh my word! Yeah.
0: So patients are taking, people are taking EPO to increase their production of haemoglobin. Yeah. And obviously it's making their blood really, really thick and sticky and causing these heart attacks. Wow. Okay. So the key learning point from that is check what drugs are being used in your local area. And that includes things like recreational drugs. So
1: I remember when I was a registrar, for example, um, I trained in Gloucester and there was a lot of meow meow being used. Which is a cat note. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, I've never seen so many cases, but that's because there was such a huge amount in that local area. Mm-hmm. And again, just have a little bit of a rough idea mm. where you're working, what the sort of the younger generation, <laughs> I should say, are taking yes. and what sort of illegal
0: highs and drugs are being used. Okay. And that's something I saw a few months ago now, uh, in coventry was that young people are inhaling nitrous oxide a lot um they call it ballooning so they get balloons they fill it up with nitrous oxide and they inhale the nitrous oxide um and again just can cause when they keep using it and using it and using it can cause confusion and anemia so the patient actually presented with anemia nobody really knew why they were anemic but it was Just incredible. There are things I didn't even know people could do. And also monkey dust and spice is quite big as well in Coventry. Yeah. So again, it's about being aware of what's in your locality. Absolutely, yeah. So what advice did you give to this man who's abusing EPO?
1: So I didn't see him after, but he obviously stopped using it. Mm. And hopefully probably told some of the people that he was using Mm -hmm. it with about it all as well. It's really, really difficult actually, isn't it? Because usually you see them when something's gone wrong, Yeah. and then it's about public and patient education really, and making sure that these patients Mm -hmm. know exactly what they're taking.
0: Yeah. So you're talking about these very high profile cyclists. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: absolutely. So they were obviously aware that it could make your blood clot, and that's why they had to obviously get out of bed and jump on the turbo bike if their heart rate dropped. But not everyone would have been given that sort of same advice Mm -hmm. when they started using it. And usually you see one of your friends using it. They're looking really good. They're performing much better (laughs) in their sport. And then you start using
0: it without actually knowing what the side effects are. That's the problem, isn't it? When you've got unregulated usage of these medications. And I know there's a big trend on microdose and EPO as well, isn't there? Yeah. So people think that microdosing is safe, but actually recurrent microdosing leads to a big dose. Well, thank you very much. There's been some really interesting learning points from that. And I will never forget those cases. So thank you so much. No
1: problem. Is
0: there anything else that you'd like to add?
1: Just, I'd like to stress about the importance of occupation in a toxicology history. I think one of the things that I'd like to just stress is just to make sure that you take a really thorough history, mm-hmm. ask about things like occupation. That can really give you a clue just perform a thorough physical examination. Mm-hmm. Remember that we're physicians. We pride ourselves on being really thorough. Mm-hmm. Look for any, any evidence of infection. So for example, if you're seeing your IVD use, mm-hmm. look for signs of infective endocarditis, look for any groin abscesses. Um, and just make sure that when you're sort of seeing these patients that present with poisoning, a lot of them will be intentional in overdoses. Mm-hmm. A lot of them will require a lot of empathy, will be some of the most vulnerable people you see in society and do just be holistic mm. and compassionate.
0: Okay, thank you. And just to, you mentioned occupational history. Just, could you just say a little bit more about that and what occupations in particular are you thinking?
1: So you need to look at whether, for example, a patient is a doctor, a nurse, a pharmacist, have they got easy access to okay. medication? Yeah. Um, other occupations related to things, for example, your heavier metals or things like mercury i'm thinking of lead lead poisoning yeah Yeah. so just kind of things like that so think about think outside the box
0: thank you so much no problem thank you so much for having me my pleasure so thank you for listening to today's episode of the rcb medicine podcast if you want to get in touch email at podcast At rcplondon.ac.uk, or you can tweet me at Amy Bertridge. Goodbye!